Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Mock. And I'm Paige Wallace. And today, I think we're having kind of both maybe a brain fart day. I almost just forgot what my name is. <laughs> well, you know, we usually record in the afternoon and we're True. recording in the morning. And I think that we're just not as on as we normally are, so... Yeah, I, um, for better or worse, often tell Andrew that my two flaws are math and mornings, and I'm working on math. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, today we're continuing talking about texts that have been taught um, many, many, many times before and keeping them fresh. Um, And today we're focusing on Faulkner and Morrison and kind of their big canon. I think both of them just have so many texts that are frequently taught, but Sound of the Fury and Beloved, I think, tend to be people's go-to. And I think they both kind of have a position as American greats. Yeah, absolutely. And and they're the go-tos sort of for, you know, for clear reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're also the texts that when we encounter students in the college classroom that they've most often had experience with um, in high school. And so we want to think about what can we do to sort of extend um, their knowledge so that they're not just coming at the text in the same exact way, walking away, uh, thinking the same things about it, but instead we're opening up new avenues of thought for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think just to dive into it, one, one of the ways I would like to kind of shape a new pers- perspective for students is by using a new approach. So moving uh, Faulkner into the digital humanities and kind of by repositioning it into a whole new context, I think that throws students off. Um, this is like as an aside, I think that's just like a good technique in general for when you have people who have very set ideas about a topic or a novel is to defamiliarize it and throw them off guard. So they're totally expecting you to zig and then you zag and they're like, wait, I got to figure out what's going on. And that gives you that window. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think by saying using digital humanities to approach Faulkner might throw students a step off so you can start introducing new ideas, new new topics, and have them be a little bit more open to it rather than relying on that. Well, in my high school class, we talked about this. My high school teacher said this. And, you know, even if all that stuff is good, it's like, yeah, 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 but you've done that. Like, now it's time to take the next step. I think that that idea of, like, sort of throwing them off a little bit goes back to some of the things we talked about in our very first uh, official episode about ambiguity right um not always having textbook answer for the the piece that we're engaging with um and how the study of literature you know is really about that ever-evolving sort of process and change and how when we read a text and come back to it five years later um, or I guess like for those high school students, it's probably much more like two years. The, the world has changed. And so our reading of that text m- might also change. Yeah, definitely. Um, so 
what I kind of want to share today is something that I came across last summer. Um, I went to the Faulkner Conference, which is like the Yaknatafa Conference, and it's held at Ole Miss in Mississippi. <laughs> um, for any Faulkner scholars, it is a really cool conference. It is super open and accepting and especially welcoming of junior scholars. I've never been at a conference that made such an effort to include junior scholars in like all of the activities that like when they would have receptions, they would go out of their way to like find the junior scholars who've never been there before and ask like, this is your first time here. How's it been going? What have you uh, been doing? And it was just such a nice way, not just to like meet people in your field, but also kind of get caught up on what the field's been talking about because they'll let you know like, oh, well, everyone's really excited to hear so-and-so's like conference presentation because blah, 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 blah. Or last year, so-and-so presented on this and I've been thinking about it ever since. And it gets you really revved up because you're just around people who are all excited about the same thing you're excited and they're super supportive. Um, so yeah, to capture that energy for the classroom. Yeah, and that's like a really, um, I'm glad you shared that with us, Margaret, because, um, you know, sometimes conferences are just, most of the time, they're so sort of overwhelming, at least for me, um, that I forget, like, how excited I am, actually, about these particular topics. Yeah, exactly, Um, and I went to this conference totally alone, and always like had people to sit with at the different events so that was nice um but one of the cool things there was that there was a lot of talk about this new resource digital yaknatafa and what it is is that it's i believe from um the university of virginia um and let me double check that but (laughs) what it does it has um See, if we were recording, sorry, this is just, but if we were recording in the afternoon, you would have known where the the digital site came from. I know. I was trying to remember if it came from Ole Miss or not, but it didn't. It came from the University of Virginia, and they got a grant from the National Endowment in the Humanities, so an NEH uh, grant, which is a reminder that those sorts of grants are available to scholars to use and to develop these sorts of projects. So kind of keep an eye out for those as well. Um, But I was showing Paige this before we started recording and Paige, I think you kind of summed it all up really nicely of that it's so nice because it's so engaging. It's really um, relies on the user's interest. So you pick what you want to look at, you set up the parameters. So, what they've done is create this visual mapping of all of Faulkner's texts. And I'm trying to think of how to explain it for people who are not looking at it. Um, Again, we are sharing all of our resources with you all on our website. Um, So the link to our website should be in the episode descriptions soon. Uh, So check that out. But I'll, I'll definitely be linking this so you can take pull it up right now if you want to. Um, but they have it for all the different novels, short stories. It's a work in progress, so there might not be thorough information available for everything. But they have a lot right now. 
Um, well, you know, I think one way I might describe it is we talked about that activity that I'll do sometimes when I give students like a packet of information and, and just say like, you know, so make what you will of this. And the website, just from sort of precursory looking at it, it makes me feel a lot like that. It's like here are these sort of folders of information, both like visual, audio, um, that you can... I, I think I do want to say, like, play around with. Yeah. Um, because so much of, of it is sort of created with that sense of I have to kind of delve in and and get lost in it a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the things I think this is particularly useful for with Sound of the Fury is that diving in, that Sound of the Fury gives us so much to work with. And I think for first-time readers, second-time readers, third-time readers, it's still overwhelming. Faulkner joked that it takes four reads <laughs> to get it. Um, so, you know, the nonlinear structure, the play with, like, senses and memories, it's hard to keep track of. So, first of all, I think digital Yaknatafa, you can... You, Encourage your students to use as a resource to help them figure out what's happening where and when. So when you go to the Sound and the Fury um, page, they have, first you're just looking at all of the geographical locations. So you get the town, you get the Compson Place, you get Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it gives you kind of these different layers so you see like what's happening where. Um, but then you also get sort of these uh, timeline breakdowns. So you can choose to look at just the se Benji section, that first April um, 7th, 1928, and see, well, what happens in this section? Um, and you can click on further locations. So something like if I wanted to see, well, what happens at the doctor's office? I don't even like remember a doctor's office showing up and then you click on it and you remember oh that's because we don't really see the doctor's office the description is given the doctor's office represents the place where benji is taken to be castrated uh, since we experienced that event from his extremely partial perspective all he remembers of that event is that when i breathed in i couldn't breathe out again which presumably refers to being rendered unconscious by inhaling ether before the operation we can't say whether the surgery was took place in a hospital or a doctor's office, and if the latter, which doctor might have performed it. Um, I think getting all these descriptions allows you to really hone in on different themes in this novel. Like Benji's castration in high school, I think you're going to talk about the event itself, not necessarily the context for that event. How many people in the U.S. have been involuntarily sterilized, why this was happening, what uh, sort of legal protections there were and were not. Um, and you can then play around with looking at other characters involved, so not just locations, but you can click the map to see the different characters that show up. Um, and again, super thorough, so you can break it down to major, major and secondary, just people from the home. Um, and it tries to show you where you can find them. Um, and it gives you descriptions for all of them. And it'll also, I believe, show you where what other texts they appear in. Um, 
And so you can start playing around with the Sound of the Furies place within the larger Faulkner canon. Um, yeah, and I think it's really interesting um, how just like this multitude of information about text and, and like one author's particular canon and the way that we're breaking down a text so that you can see the different um, geographical areas, the different characters, the different timelines a little bit as well might also be a way of there might also be a way of replicating that with other texts that are not Faulkner right yeah so I'm thinking about something like if you teach sound in the fury and you use this um digital tool to unpack it you can then teach something like uh Kise Lehmann's long division which is sort of um really postmodern um and includes time travel and multiple characters and characters that are in different timelines that might be the same people but aren't and so it's a it can be a really hard text to unpack super rewarding and interesting but uh it's asking you to do a lot of work that something like Faulkner with this digital Yaknatafa could help you like sort of prepare for for that next book yeah exactly and I think that having a resource that helps you that gives some of that work done for you is going to help your students move on to that close reading we want them to do because they're not just worried about understanding what's literally happening so they can move on to that analysis portion with a little bit more confidence and the other thing I really like about this is that because it lays out so much information, it allows them to kind of pick up on things they may not have noticed otherwise while they're trying to piece everything together or glossed over or just rush through to try to figure things out. And so it lets you kind of go back. I don't want to say reflect, but... Well, revisit. Re- yeah, and be like, oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. What what do we what happens with that? What do we what that seems more important when I look at it on a map? Like um yeah, and that that sort of uh, playing around with uh, the particular way in which the information's being delivered, right? So mm-hmm. it can be really easy when you're reading for this assignment uh, and you're trying to get through the two chapters you, that are due to miss things. And so pairing that with a moment to, to take a look at some of the visuals from this website uh, prompts that revisit and then maybe also rereading. Yeah, exactly. I think it, exactly that, that rereading, that using a resource like that, I think can really emphasize the importance of rereading and encourage students to go back to different parts of the text um, and think about oh, well, I first thought it was this, but looking at it through the map, I'm seeing its connections to different tech or different texts, different characters, different events in a different way. Um, If you are teaching something like Faulkner in a Southern literature course, I think something that the digital Yachner Tafa does really well is remind your students that the South is not a place that exists in a vacuum. It has wider connections <laughs> to America and the world. Um, so you see kind of for Sound of the Fury, it breaks it down, like I said before, like the region. So we see 
um, the different places the characters moved. So like Dilsey's children who moved to Memphis um, or Benji being sent to the asylum, it breaks that down. And then the nation where we remember that, you know, um, Quentin goes to Cambridge in Massachusetts. Um, but we also get different characters interacting um, from like Indiana, which is where Herbert Head is from, um, St. Louis, um, etc. And then you also get the world. Like, Jason is thinking about someone he knows who sent a Chinese missionary. Um, or there's a character who references how great Canada is. And etc. that the South is a part of the global context. It's not this walled-off place where we can regulate, you know, the otherness of America. Right, absolutely. And I think that... Um when thinking about Faulkner, especially Sound and the Fury, it could be really helpful to incorporate Edward Glissant, who is a Caribbean writer and um, theorist, uh, who talks a lot and writes a lot about Faulkner and how the plantation is a part of the global South, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that... There is no containment of uh, problems, right? This idea of the internal other, which is what the American South is often uh, regulated to, right? A container for the problems of race and class also. Um, And then we get these really sort of uh, oversimplified versions of what racism is, right? Mm -hmm. Something that exists in the South and nowhere else, Um, and we know that not to be true. And so I think that uh, I would be interested in using Glissant and his ideas about the plantation and the decay of the plantation and uh, colonialism um, as a way to think through Faulkner and then other larger conversations about um, like or other larger eco-critical conversations about uh, the ways in which the plantation culture has propagated and supported um, racism and classism and also um, things that are detrimental or that these things are detrimental for the environment as well, Mm -hmm. right? In creating monocultures and um, erasing people and um, histories from particular places. Yeah, um, this is gonna be a weird build off of what you're saying, but it just made me think of it. So that like erasure, and what it does like people, land, etc. Um, that's something else that digital humanities can be really useful for, is because it lets you go back into like manuscripts are now more readily avail- available. So like seeing like the drafts of of a novel or the writer's letters and conversations. Where before you would have to travel to a library in another state, go through, like, you know, maybe get funding to be able to afford that. You definitely can't take your students. Right. Um, now a lot of these resources are available online. So I know, like, Digital Yakintafa has different manuscripts associated with the books. I have not used them in depth, so I don't know how much they provide. But um, just, like, as an aside, like, I know one of the big scholarly concerns for Sound and the Fury is there's a scene in the novel where they talk about that's where old fancy died 
and it's a that fancy is interpreted to be the horse but in earlier drafts of the novel it was that's where nancy died Mm -hmm. and nancy is a black woman who appears in another story about the compson children and so you get this question in scholarly conversations about well who died there what's the landmark here because that's going to take very different meaning in what's happening here and like um Faulkner is some a writer who is very aware of the specific types of violence that are used against different people um so you can kind of use it almost like a digital archaeology of text and and have your students kind of investigate those silences and layers and who gets erased and who gets highlighted, I think, in a way that you can't when you're just working with the text in isolation. Right. Definitely. Um, And then I think what I think that that does lend to the points I was making about Glissant also because we're thinking about how like disruption Um, And the ways in which Faulkner and his texts disrupt the American uh, imagination um, Mm -hmm. and the ways in which history is whitewashed and um, this act of erasure, which is always tied to violence. And so when we think about, we've talked about how we want to bring texts forward. um, We are currently, so our podcast is our, podcasts are backdated a little in terms of when we post them but right now um we're in this cultural moment of uh the george floyd protest and this sort of american imaginary that change has always happened peacefully and without bloodshed and this sort of very real-time erasure of actual events and things that are happening right and so um I think that Faulkner could also be a way of talking through um, some of these ideas and some of these, like, current traumas um, Mm. and the way that... And also the digital space, right? And how the current traumas are... Digital spaces are both good and bad. So thinking about, like, the ability to record a violent and brutal exchange between a police officer and a person, which is good because not good but it has value in the sense that we can then demand that that person be held accountable in ways that maybe we didn't have access to before but it's also bad because it dehumanizes a whole human to watch them die and then the other part and I I might be going on a bit of a tangent but I've been looking at all of the sort of viral videos of police officers joining protest Mm. um And I'm very conflicted because I think that there's this moment of how we construct our own narrative and how, um, and people are responding to those viral videos and saying, yeah, that, that put that police officer, that police chief walked with us, he marched with us, and then they pepper sprayed us a mile down the road. Um, and so I think that that's related again to this American imaginary, um, and the way in which, uh, we use it to create a story that is romanticized and nostalgic and idealized, um, and that's not really um, the reality. Yeah. Um, 
I have so many thoughts right now. One of the things I'm thinking of, and this is not something I would do, like, pedagogically speaking, but I think there might be a seed here. Um, but thinking about Sound of the Fury again and how, like, Faulkner talks about it was supposed to be a short story, it was supposed to be just be Benji's section, and so he, but it's the story of Caddy. That's who he's trying to tell the story about. Um, Caddy is his heart's darling, whatever. And he writes this, the story, and it's not enough. So then he writes the next section that's from Quentin's point of view, and it's not enough. So then he gets the other perspective, Jason's, and it's not enough. And then we get that final section, and he's like, it, it's what we'll have to do. Which, you know, that might be like that self-constructed narrative of, you know, a different kind of imaginary, but that's his story, and he stuck to it. But what I think about with the video sometimes, like you're saying, it can be productive in that it gives us this seemingly concrete evidence but it also you you see commenters saying things like well what happened before the video to provoke this where we start to get this argument that no video is ever going to be long enough or they say well what's happening over there so it's like no, there's no angle that's never enough for people um but then it's also like what you're saying like what are the other perspectives what are the other stories in this that I'm just thinking about how, and all the people whose, whose deaths or assaults or abuses were not documented on camera, and how, so on one hand, like, now we need footage for the crime to be real, but it's also no footage is ever going to be enough for some people, and, like, I don't know, because I'm thinking just, like, in terms of literature, too, we grapple with this. And I know in, in the literature classroom, these stakes are much lower. It's not life or death. But it is in terms of how do we humanize people? How do we keep people humanized in our classrooms and not reduce them to a single perspective? Right. A stereotype, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that also then what we need to think about um, or talk about a little bit is acknowledging that it's necessary to to address the trauma that mm. this sort of um, American imaginary has created and the authors that disrupt that American imaginary, uh, but that uh, some of our students are already very aware of this trauma uh, mm. and that these are there's a delicate balance of lending your classroom space to authors like Toni Morrison who disrupt the American imaginary in a really direct way and oversaturating your classroom with this sort of constant beratement of trauma for your students uh, that are already living in this world where we have these videos of, of people like George Floyd. Yeah, and Paige, you've talked about this too before. Um, one of the professors you took talked about, like, are, are we giving our students narratives that enforce this idea that certain identities only experience trauma and there's no joy right in that experience yeah and that there's no and that and that was a really um important class for me and uh I think that that conversation was so helpful right in terms of thinking about uh, again like in in 
the sort of journey to be anti-racist and to um, have a syllabus that is supporting that that project? Um, do we re-traumatize our students at times, right? When we only give them this perspective that all their stories are about trauma um, and grief. Yeah, because, like, you want your classroom to be a place that offers these multiple perspectives and multiple experiences that, that we don't have just the one camera angle. Um, but you also... <laughs> it's the same conversation we're seeing like people being forced to look at this footage and not needing to, to see it, to believe it. I think that this is also a good place to kind of plug someone like Jasmine Ward, who Mm -hmm. I feel like is a contemporary working with the same sort of ideas that Faulkner and Morrison worked with before her. And she's an author that is thinking about and, and communicating the trauma that African-Americans and specifically uh, African-American children experience. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, she's creating texts like Salvage the Bones and Sing Unburied Sing in which families are so, so very important and foundational. Mm-hmm. And the families are places of love. Yeah, so thinking about those different perspectives um, and that Faulkner, I think, very consciously offers a white American's perspective of a specific time and place that's connected to other specific times and places. That sounds a little bit pinchian, I think, but Faulkner was very aware of what position he held in society, and he wrote that but also challenged that and so to kind of provide other perspectives of the cell or perspectives of the american experience a lot of teachers rely on tony morrison for good reasons we talked about like greatest american writer of the 20th century absolutely yes and we tend to go to beloved um the amount of times i've had students say like Oh, yeah, I've attended Morrison. We read Beloved in high school. And it's like, oh, well, I'm glad high schools are incorporating it into classes, definitely. But it's become a go-to that students have read again and again. And it's such a good novel that when they have that, like, attitude of it's a go-to, it can be really disappointing, I think, because you're, you're like, well, I know that you've read this before and you feel like maybe you've got it. There's nothing else there, but there's so much there, right? If you have to read Faulkner four times, then you have to definitely read Beloved, like, 12, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so to get students in a place where they're ready to learn about Beloved and go beyond just, yeah, this is sad, slavery was sad, isn't it so good that we've moved beyond that? What do you do? Ooh, that's such a hard question. That's a good question. Like, so what do we do with Beloved? And first and foremost, you talked about the language that Morrison uses and not to like steal your 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 thunder there, but I think that's something that is important in terms of yes, this is a book about trauma. This is a book about a mother's trauma. This is a very difficult text for me to reread after I had children of my own. But it's also a book in which Morrison is very specific with her language in in that Setha is both a victim but also powerful and that the community is not 
perfect, but it's also a place of strength that the ghosts are parts of the story that, like, that can't be erased, and the language solidifies that, I think. So, something, like, that I'm now just remembering, in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, when, after apartheid, when they're trying to work through everything, um, South Africa, because it is a colonized geography they have I think like something like they have over a hundred languages and so everyone kind of has different native languages that they're working with um, primary languages and um, so during the commission they had headphones that were given out and they just had all of these translators working full-time to give live translations of people's testimony so that way because part of it was you had it gave both victims and um, perpetuators of, of the violence, the criminals, um, to give voice to what had happened that had been erased for so long. No, that's not happening. That didn't happen. We didn't do that. Your, your husband just disappeared. Your sister just disappeared. We don't know what you're talking about. That it was a place for people to say, this is what happened to my family. This is what happened to me. But also, this is what I did. And here are your answers. Um, but one of the things that also happened was that people would just start wailing on, on the stand because there is no language for certain experiences. There is no language for certain types of grief. Um, and how do you translate that? Which is totally glissant, um, <laughs> who talks about like this idea that language, um, there's some things that are not access, like we cannot access them through language. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I think Morrison obviously is, tapping into that there are certain things that cannot be said so how do we say them but also there are certain things that must be said and also and also and also and also and also <laughs> like all these things that language does language is used to humanize language is used to dehumanize language is used to spotlight language is used to erase so what do we do with language um and i think that's one of the things that this novel grapples with that I think we can explore in the classroom. Um, so we have like the scientists who are using very scientific language to break down Setha into a collection of parts. That she's no longer a human body, she is parts of a body. And science gets away with that sort of use mm-hmm. of the that language, right? Um, as part of that grand narrative of being entirely objective. And so these racist ideas are not mine. They're my scientific discovery and how language has supported that. Yeah, and so that might be something actually that's useful to start beloved with now that I'm thinking about it. I've never done it with this text, um, but two things you can do to play with language and and really help your students understand these issues is one, have them read Horace Minor's um, Body Rituals of the Nasarima. And uh, again, this is a a text that's used again and again in college. So you probably have like a few students who know what it is, but the majority of them will not have seen it. And just have them read the first few paragraphs and ask them, who are the Nasarima? And they'll you'll watch them think really hard. And the ones who know are sitting there like gleefully, like, oh, you're not gonna see this twist coming, guys. <laughs> and and then when they realize that it's about Americans, they're like, 
oh, and you watch them reread those paragraphs, and they're like, that is what we do, but that's not how I would describe it. <laughs> um, and so thinking, and then we talk about how, like, Horace Minor was critiquing the way anthropologists were talking about human beings of other cultures and that this dehumanized them and wasn't an accurate representation, although it was technically correct. Um, and so I think that's something you can do to start thinking about, like, scientific language and how language dehumanizes. Um, and then the other thing, I've done this not specifically with Margaret Garner. I've done it with Buck versus Bell, where we look at the legal decision and have students um, play around with that. And I'll, I'll talk about that specific activity another time. But I think you can look at the, the case of Margaret Garner, the enslaved woman who this inspires this novel and think about the legal case that surrounded that that abolitionists wanted her charged with murder and that language was specific because if she killed if it was murder then that means she killed a person she didn't steal property and that language is essential to this um and so like thinking about not just scientific language but legal language and how that's used yeah, and I think that would be really interesting in a law and literature class because um, I don't think Beloved is, and, and maybe I don't know, but but I could be wrong, but I don't think Beloved's a, a text that's typically used in a, in a law and literature class. Those points, I think, could make it um, a really interesting read in, in a class like that. Yeah, I agree. I didn't think about law and literature. That would be really cool in thinking about these depictions. And that's actually, that makes me think another text that might work well to help people with this is um, Zong, which is um, a documentary poetry. I must say novel. It's not. It's a, I, I guess collection would be the right word, but it's kind of this one like epic poem almost, um, which I guess, Paige, are you familiar with like the Zong massacre? I'm not. So it was a slave ship. And I didn't know about this. This is not something we're taught in our history classes. We're taught about how they packed slaves on. You had too many. But one of the reasons they were packing these human beings so tightly together was because they would die on the trip, obviously. And they would toss them overboard. But then they got to collect insurance on the, the lost cargo. So human beings being redefined as cargo and companies collecting the insurance money. And with the Zong Massacre they were throwing live people overboard to oh collect gosh. insurance money. And um, abolitionists used this as a legal case. And it was a, and so it, oh, I forget his first name, but Equiano, who he wrote this slave narrative that's often taught, he was one of the people involved in the, the trial. But I believe it was tried in British courts. And so you have all of these documents from all sides. And the company was found not guilty of manslaughter or murder, of insurance fraud and so but it, it it really helped the abolitionist case because you had all this documentation and so people were horrified by what was happening and it really catalyzed um a lot of the abolitionist movement in the u.s or not the u.s the in england but zong the poetry collection takes those doc court documents and does and plays around with them so all the language in in the poems are from those legal docs oh that's but, that's that would be so interesting yeah, so I think especially when you get to the part of Beloved where you get into the the threnody, the, the multiple voices talking, I think maybe you could do something like that and think about, well, how do we adapt legal language, scientific language that's being used to dehumanize 
and resist it? How do we turn it into something that rehumanizes or builds community mm-hmm. or uncovers yeah. what has been covered? And so ask me what my dream course is. <laughs> What's your dream course? I didn't have one. Like I, at the beginning of this episode, I was like, I don't know what I would do. But I think like something like literature and American policing or just like law and literature mm. in general. Um, I'd like to look at like a multitude of uh, text, uh, maybe even beginning with like figures like Beyonce and her song Forward, um, but also now Beloved and this the song poetry collection that you're talking about. I would also want to use Sing Unburied Sing and maybe Colson Whitehead's Nickel Boys. But yeah, I think that focus on language specifically and how it's used to dehumanize and then the ways in which like resistance to that language across different genres like music, novels, poetry uh, would be really interesting. Yeah, that would be really cool thinking about like it is a multi-genre class. It makes me think too, um, Lead Belly, are the... I don't know if I would say folk singer, but um, kind of the way musicians get positioned, like, in America as, like, outside the law, like, they're lawless people, so, Mm -hmm. but it gives us a place, so, like, Lead Belly was pardoned by the governor, I forget if Texas or Tennessee, I don't remember off the top of my head, but, like, you're not going to get that for a writer or yeah. <laughs> or something like that that but it also like what you were saying part of that american imaginary then we can point to and see say like we'll see like look at how his art saved him or i guess what we talked about last time too with like hamilton they wrote their way out so you can do it you just have to try harder i feel like i've talked a lot today <laughs> um i feel like you have just like said amazing things today uh-huh. I'm not asking. I have a lot of I feel like now I'm, like, fishing for compliments on, like, a recording. (laughs) Like, say nice things so I can play it back. I don't need that. (laughs) No, 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 no. Well, tell us, then let let me just get you out of the hole. Just tell us your your dream course. Yeah, so dream course, I just finished reading Gingerbread or listening to Gingerbread by Helen Oyeyemi. And loved it loved the loved it it is so like such a specific novel I don't have anything really to compare it to or like a specific genre I can categorize it in it's like very real but also surreal it feels otherworldly but also very grounded um and so the only I guess like quick summary it's about three women grandmother mother daughter who the grandmother and mother have immigrated to the UK from Druhastrana, which is a country that may or may not exist. (laughs) And they bake phenomenal gingerbread that is said to, at various points, like one part it's said to taste like revenge and and noshing on the anatomical heart of someone Uh who has hurt your beloved. Okay. Another part, it's described as something like spice and sweet and a howl at the moon. (laughs) Um, So it's, it's, and it's really, really cool. So it's like takes things from like Hansel and Gretel. um, So those themes of like hunger, family, being lost, who who can you trust or turn to? Um, But it's inspired me that I would love to teach a class on the literature of immigration. Okay. 
but do it with novels that come at it from different ways. So like this sort of novel where it doesn't present itself as a novel of immigration, but it is about being like uncertain in a new world, having like these traditions, um, having to learn language. Um, and, and there's so much more to it than that. Um, also, maybe like The Leavers mm-hmm. um, by Lisa Ko, who okay. um, it's about a boy who's adopted by a white couple when he's 10 after his Chinese mother disappears, and then he finds out what's happened to her. Mm-hmm. And so these different stories about like where I think you can use immigration to talk about these the intersecting issues that come with that. So like policing, gender, class, etc., um, I don't know. I, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, that it. sounds really interesting. I haven't read um, Gingerbread, but also I was thinking about food, right, mm-hmm. as part of that, like, immigration sort of narrative. Um, and that seems to be important with this, like, yeah. magical gingerbread. Yeah. yeah. Actually, the other thing I want to do with this novel is it makes me want to just for myself put together a list of books that like have food at the center and try to make recipes for each of them. (laughs) That's that's a personal project. That's like a wonderful personal project, you know, like when you are stuck in quarantine or like social distancing, that's like a, that's a pretty good personal project. I was thinking at first though about that being a class and I realized I can't ask my students to bake for a literature course. Like there's there's too many reasons for to not have that be a requirement. So I mean, um, you don't have to make it a requirement, but I mean, I think there's some th- ways around like you could think final about project it. option. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, those are that's my dream course for this week and I just want to kind of remind any listeners we have, one, love to hear about their drink courses. I always want to hear about that. Or anything they're encountering in the classroom or online teaching or any questions they have that they can email us at literaturallypodcast at gmail.com. We don't have social media set up yet. We've talked about that, but we don't. <laughs> I mean, I it's hard to say because by the time this episode is posted, we might... Uh, we might, yeah. So yeah. check out, yeah. check out our links in the this description because it will be more up to date than we currently are. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Margaret, I will talk to you later. Yeah, sounds good. Bye.